Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Louis Bosco, artist, author, and religious educator, giving a talk entitled Images of the Unseen, the Mysteries of Life Revealed in Sacred Heart. Mr. Bosco's talk was part of the Fine Arts Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. What an honor and a blessing it is to be with you tonight, to be here at uh, my alma mater, Franciscan University. I don't know if Dr. Meldrum mentioned that I did get a master's here in theology as well. It's kind of where my journey ended, uh, ended up, I should say, not ended, it's just begun. But the art uh, side of the, of the journey was sort of the beginning. And as I had just um, was mentioning with um, some people I was talking to before the talk, it's amazing how looking back now uh, from a faith perspective, from the fullness of the faith in the Catholic Church and looking back now at my art training and, and background and, and studies, how differently I see art um, and how much more, I, more deeply I appreciate it. And we're going to have a very brief um, overview tonight, um, mainly of Western art. I'm just going to kind of scratch the surface, but I hope that at very least it will be, will whet your appetite to go out and, uh, and see more art and, and will deepen your appreciation for art. Um, and I, I hope to give you a perspective on the art that you're, um, it's fully the church's perspective. Certainly you would, you would get it here at Franciscan, but not many places else. Um, my background with art history was very secular background. I'll share a little bit of that with you. Uh, but before we get too far into the talk, uh, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness, I thank you for the opportunity of this talk. I thank you for the blessing of these individuals, these souls who've come to hear what I have to say. I ask humbly, Father, that you permit me with your, by your grace to only say those words that you desire me to say, not one word more, not one word less. And I ask that you bless our conversation this evening. And we ask this as we ask all things in the holy name of Jesus, your Son, and our Lord, through Mary's immaculate heart. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I came to share with you tonight my love of art and faith. And primarily, uh, at the heart of it, is I came to share my love of Jesus Christ with you. And I know that you came here in turn, not so much to hear me speak, but because of your love of Jesus. And I, I say that realizing many of you are students who were compelled to come tonight by uh, Professor Meldrum. But uh, nonetheless, you know, certainly um, I know that you're drawn here because of him. And so I really came tonight to share the gospel with you. And when we're talking about sharing the gospel, of course, which is the, is the primary mission of the church, and we're talking about evangelization. And you know, the church 
has a beautiful understanding that when you're talking about evangelization, you must necessarily be talking about catechesis. And so um, Professor Meldrum mentioned how I'm working in the catechetical field now in Pittsburgh. And that's really, as I've discovered, it's, uh, I've been doing that for seven years, and it's, it's become the joy of my life. And uh, I've really, uh, for the first time in my life, have a job where I can't wait to go there in the morning and you know, want to stay. And um, not that I, I'm not going to say I hate to come home. I certainly love to come home and see my wife and children. But uh, it's, I just thoroughly enjoy and love what I do. And what an experience that is. And, I don't want to talk too much about myself tonight, but I do want to give you a little bit of background, put this into somewhat of a context, that when I was an art student, both undergraduate and graduate, I was very far away from Jesus and the church. Um, and uh, definitely living a very, very uh, worldly, you know, secular life. And um, <clears throat> I, I, uh, and it's, it's a miracle of God's grace. I'm sure what I'm trying to say is if you had met me back then, you never, if you had been one of my fellow students in, in art school, you never would have thought that someday I'd be giving a lecture on sacred art or working as a DRE, you know, working for the church. And so it's amazing the plans that God has for us. Um, but uh, when I started to be reintroduced to my childhood faith, the Catholic faith, um, as an adult, and I think that I you know, God gives us things when we're ready for them. And I started to hear things, it seemed to me like for the first time, what Catholics believe, what the church teaches, and explained to me in a way that I could understand and that made sense. Not just the textbook answer, but not just the what of what the church believes, but the why. Why do we believe it? And it just made so much sense to me. And I continually had these revelations. And my uh, desire to go into the field of religious education and into catechetics was to share that knowledge, that wonderful revelation with others, to have others have that experience of, of what the Catholic Church teaches just makes sense. It, they give us the truth and the meaning of life, and apart from it, life seems to have no meaning. You know? And Jesus Christ is the answer to, to all the questions that not just we as Catholics or, or as Christians have, but all people instinctively made in his image and likeness have these questions on our heart. And so as I mentioned, um, that's a little background of how I got into catechetics and, and um, my background in art. But as I mentioned, the church really has that wonderful understanding that um, as Pope Paul VI said in uh, Evangelii Nuntiandi, that a, a means of evangelization that must not be neglected is that of catechetical instruction. And the Holy Father there was speaking of a systematic catechesis. And the argument that I want to make tonight is the church's heritage of sacred art is, um, forms a system of catechesis, that they're not just images, that they're um, telling a story, the story of who we are, where we came from and where we're going, um, the story of Jesus, the gospel. Um, in my book, <coughs> Images of the Unseen, I write that the Catholic Church expresses her faith in material ways because of her belief in the Incarnation, that God took on human flesh in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Sacred Scripture calls the Lord Jesus the image of the invisible God. 
In Him, God, an unseen spiritual being, became fully seeable, hearable, touchable, became one of us. Spirit became flesh. The intangible became tangible. The, knowable became, the unknowable became knowable. God, who is beyond space and time, entered into them in a real way. Divinity and humanity met and were reconciled. So I want to talk tonight about the sacred artist as a storyteller and as a catechist. And I say that not meaning to, to imply that every artist uh, is a perfect model Christian. But what I mean to say is that the sacred artist works within a tradition, a sacred tradition, which is catechetical and which leads us to Jesus and to the fullness of the truth. And I was inspired to write this book, Images of the Unseen, uh, in large part by John Paul the Great. And I want to also read a small um, excerpt from his letter to the artists, in which he says, Mine is an invitation to rediscover the depth of the spiritual and religious dimension, which has been typical of art in its noblest forms in every age. It is with this in mind that I appeal to you, artists of the written and spoken word, of the theater and music, of the plastic arts and the most recent technologies in the field of communication. I appeal especially to you, Christian artists. I wish to remind each of you that beyond functional considerations, the close alliance that has always existed between the gospel and art means that you are invited to use your creative intuition to enter into the heart of the mystery of the incarnate God and at the same time into the mystery of man. So notice the connections that our Holy Father um, draws there between um, the gospel and art and the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery of man. And pardon me for one second, I think my computer froze up there. Which I was afraid if I went on too long on my introduction that would happen. So we'll move on to, there we go. Um, there's, a, there's an intricate connection between uh, understanding man and understanding Christ. The uh, incarnation, of course, is the uh, central teaching of our faith that sets Christianity apart from all other religions, the idea that God became one of us to be with us. As St. John writes in his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The painting that we're looking at on the screen right now is The Incredulity of St. Thomas by Caravaggio, painted in the um, Baroque period, in the early 1600s. And uh, with this image, you see of course, you see the incarnation that um, Christ, you know, his um, becoming man was not merely in a symbolic or merely spiritual way. He really literally, literally did become man. 
uh, flesh and blood that, that we could touch and, and um, have contact with. And I think that uh, the artist here takes some liberties with, with the gospel. You know, jo um, John doesn't tell us whether or not, uh, the gospel writers, I should say, don't, don't tell us whether or not Thomas actually touched our Lord. We know that he said that he, he wanted to before he would believe. But then when our Lord appeared to him, he simply, you know, fell down and said, my Lord and my God. But here Caravaggio imagines Jesus actually, you know, taking Thomas's hand and, and leading it to touch, to probe his wound. And he's saying to him, here I am, you know, come and see. And that's how Jesus, that's how real Jesus is to us and how close, closely he wants to relate to us, how closely, close he wants to be to us. And so uh, we're not just going to look at sacred art tonight. Um, and I think that, uh, as John Paul said in, in the excerpt I'd read a, a moment ago, that these questions of the human existence um, that are written on the human heart transcend religion and culture and time. They're instinctively something that, you know, every, every human being asks these questions. And what I, I had mentioned how, from the um, religious point of view, looking back at art, um, how I saw it differently. And what I started to see was, as I looked at ancient art, and art before Christianity was, uh, I saw those questions being asked by the artist. And I saw the artist as storyteller attempting to give answers to these questions in a very limited way. A good example of that, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. This is a, uh, one of the cave paintings from Lascaux, France. So we're going back to the upper Paleolithic period. And, um, I'm going to say that there's an analogy, I'm going to draw an analogy in a certain sense um, with pre-Christian and Christian art to the Old and New Testament in this way. That just as the Old Testament prepares us to encounter Christ by revealing the human condition and our need for Christ, I think in a similar way that pre-Christian art, it does much of the same thing. And again, we see a lot of those basic questions of our existence being asked but we don't quite get a satisfying answer yet. And so when we look at this, um, this painting, you know, certainly obviously we see um, animals, you know, indigenous animals at the time. And uh, we see, by the way, both predators and prey being um, portrayed. And they have, uh, it's more than merely, I think, the artist um, trying to um, capture, his, uh, record his history. I think there's a spiritual nature to, to this art. I think that you know, almost to the extent that the animals appear uh, as spirits kind of floating through the ether, you know. And um, when, uh, you know, when John Paul, uh, he, when he was writing about, uh, about um, these questions of, um, that pervade uh, the different cultures and religions, he said that these questions of who am I, where have I come from, and where am I going, where, why is there evil, what is there after this life? He said, these are questions which we find in the sacred writings of Israel, as also in the Veda and the Avesta. We find them in the writings of Confucius and Lao Tzu, in the preaching of Tirthankara and Buddha. They appear in the poetry of Homer, in the tragedies of Euripides and Sophocles, as they do in the philosophical writings of Plato and Aristotle. They are questions which have their common source in the quest for meaning, 
which has always compelled the human heart. In fact, the answer given to these questions decides the direction which people seek to give their lives. And so if those questions are, are there um, that transcend culture and religion, um, we should find them, and we do, in, even in the pre-Christian art. And I think when I look at, at this painting, what I see is a desire for survival. I see uh, a belief, an inherent belief in the goodness of, of the human race. That, you know, that there's some goodness in us that, that, that warrants that we continue. I also see that there's an appeal made to some higher power, the, the uh, belief in the presence of a deity and the, uh, the spiritual quality of, of these works. And um, I think that, uh, you know, sometimes we take for granted the, 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 tr the fact that we do create art, you know, but the fact is that, you know, on earth, human beings are the only creatures that do that. You know, we're the only animal that would, would think to, to paint pictures and write books and, and, and do theater and so forth. And even more mysterious, these, you know, the art making is gratuitous. It's not something that we have to do to survive. It's not a matter of survival. These, our ancestors that painted this picture on the wall did not have to do this to survive. But something inside them, something intrinsically um, human, led them to do this. G.K. Chesterton, um, famously, you know, in reflecting on this idea, talked about how we don't see with anthills and beehives, we don't see them decorated with statues of famous ants and queen bees of the past. You know, so why, why do we as, as people do that? A man is set apart from the lower animals by his ability to reason and by his free will, but in a special way by his um, desire to create art. This um, also from uh, prehistoric times, the Venus of Willendorf um, is believed to be a fertility goddess, um, hence the the name. It's about a four and a half inch um, small carving. And again, I think we see in this a, an appeal to a deity and, uh, you know, the idea that life, that procreation is a good thing, you know, the goodness of the human person. Um, and so an appeal to a, to, um, to a higher power and the, uh, the belief that life should continue. And, you know, this um, spiritual quality, the, um, the trait that man uniquely has to be religious, goes all the way back, it's found in every human culture, you know, and, and to the extent that uh, to have a totally atheistic culture or society, as we see in some cases today, and our own culture seems to be moving in that direction, is, is an aberration in history. You know, man has always been spiritual and religious. Um, you know, in, uh, in Iraq, there were um, archaeologists uncovered burial, ancient burial sites um, from the Paleolithic period where the um, the deceased was placed in the fetal position, and there's evidence of a, of a burial rite. You know, they found traces of pollen and so forth um, in the grave. So the idea that some sort of religious ceremony was, was performed there. This is the palette of King Narmer. It comes from the dynastic period in, in ancient Egypt, and we see here a more sophisticated um, storytelling. And in this case, um, it's meant to depict the uh, victory of Upper Egypt over Lower. And uh, King Narmer, by the way, is the first person we know of in history to be depicted and to have his uh, portrait, I guess, um, depicted in art. And we see him um, in these images, which, by the way, are presented um, sequentially, you know, very much 
so to be read um, you know, as, a, as a drama, as a story. And we see him in uh, some of the scenes. He's uh, prominently standing over um, the de decapitated bodies of his enemies. Uh, we see him in the larger picture. He's gripping one of his enemies by the hair, about to club him. And so we, we see also, um, along with the, the goodness of the human person that's indicated in, in ancient art, we also see man's inhumanity to man. We see that, that we have a fallen human nature. This is uh, the bust of Queen Nefertiti, and, um, whose husband, by, by the way, um, Akhenaten, was a monotheist, and he promoted uh, devotion to the sun god Aten. But we see a shift um, with this work in Egyptian art to more naturalistic um, rendering, more naturalistic looking forms. And, um, you know, portraiture is a funny thing. We um, might wonder why, why do we do that? What compels us um, as, as people, not just to make pictures, but to make pictures of ourselves and of others. Um, I think that we see in this, if we look a little bit beneath the surface, a certain fear of death and a hope for immortality. Um, and what's interesting, of course, in uh, Nefertiti's time, um, immortality was pretty much reserved for uh, the wealthy or, or those of the, of the noble class who could afford to have their portrait um, made. And so that hope, though, that we see of immortality was really a hope built on a contrived notion of uh, one's superiority. It wasn't really something based on um, anything objectively real. And here we have a Roman copy of a Greek original of uh, the Apollo Belvedere. And this um, particular uh, sculpture was very much loved uh, during the Enlightenment period, so-called Enlightenment, I have to say, uh, as it was seen as a symbol of classical beauty. And so, of course, this portrays the uh, Greek and Roman god Apollo. And we see in this image that he's um, looking off to the horizon and uh, getting ready maybe to step aboard his chariot, his fiery chariot, and go across the sky. But we see in this that he's looking away from uh, the earth, looking away from uh, human concerns. And we see in this a uh, certain ideal of escapism. In this next work, the, uh, also from the Roman period, uh, copy, Roman copy from the Hellenistic period, I should say, of the dying Gaul. And we see here, uh, again, a curiosity with death. But I think, though, uh, to be fair, it's really kind of almost an academic study of death, detached from real emotion and lacking compassion. You know, they're just, we're, this poor guy, we've been waiting uh, centuries to watch this guy die, you know. <laughs> He's just been kind of frozen in that position. But, um, but there's no real um, sense that it's, it's of, of human suffering, you know. Of, of suffering with. And so um, in the pre-Christian art we see um, what I call in my book the universal story, the universal truths of human existence. Um, we see some points such as the existence of the divine. And this is again would be something that we find in, you know, in all cultures and all religions and so forth. The fear of death and the hope for immortality and our fallen state, our need for redemption. And uh, the questions, again, that I, that I want to focus on that um, John Paul so nicely summarized for us, questions of who, who am I, where did I come from, and where am I going, are a very nice summary of that universal story. 
And we know as Catholics that we can um, partially understand this story through, through reason uh, and through observation. That we have the, you know, God's natural laws written on our hearts. But that we can't fully um, understand these, or answer these questions purely by reason. It, at a certain point, it becomes necessary for faith to complete the story. And so, in particular, Jesus Christ is the uh, completion of that story. Our story finds completion in Him to the extent that, apart from Him, the story and our life, our existence, seems meaningless. Um, this is an uh, image, the crucifixion by Diego Velasquez, a broke artist in the 1600s. And in, in the uh, image of when we're looking at the crucifixion, what we're seeing is our fear of death, that universal fear of death, uh, meeting the death of God. And in the um, <clears throat> reflecting upon our Lord's death, in, in my book I wrote, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ is the paradox of all paradoxes. It is, for noth it is nothing less than the death of the author of life, the death of God. He who suspended the earth is suspended, wrote St. Melito of Sardes in about 170. He who fixed the heavens is fixed. He who fastened all things is fastened to the wood. The master is outraged. God is murdered. We kind of um, sometimes have a tendency to, uh, to overlook the fact that, that Jesus truly was God, is God and that he truly did suffer. Um, sometimes uh, people have the, um, the instinct to want to separate the human Jesus from the divine. Certainly in the early centuries of the faith, uh, the Gnostics did that very thing, where they had the belief that you know, they couldn't reconcile the idea of God suffering. Um, and so they, um, they came up with the notion that his body was not a real human body. It was like a phantasm or a ghost body. But as we see in uh, Velasquez's painting, it's, it's a real uh, human body. You know, we can see the weight of the body on the cross. We can see the blood. We can see it's starting to take on the pallor of death. In fact, there's only a, a slight, a faint corona about the sacred head that even begins to suggest divinity. And so we very, it's very proper to say, as Catholics, we believe God died for us because we believe that uh, there was never a time where uh, Jesus was, you know, you, you could separate the divine from the human in Jesus. And um, St. Justin the Martyr, in uh, about the year 150, in his first apology, reflecting on the crucifixion, he writes, The cross is the greatest symbol of Christ's power and authority, as can be shown from things you can see. So notice how he goes from the spiritual to the things we can observe in nature, the things that we can see and interpret with our senses. So he says, the power of the cross can be shown from the things you can see. And this, of course, would have made a lot of sense. You know, his apology was written for, um, for the Roman um, culture, the Roman people who were um, very suspicious and had a lot of misunderstandings about this new Christian faith. And so he was writing to defend the Christian faith and to explain it to them in a way they could understand. And their culture, much like our culture today, was very dependent on the senses and, and um, you know, being able to, you know, what I, what I can see is real, you know, and what I can feel is, is truth. 
So he goes on to say, reflect on all things in the universe and consider whether they could be governed or held together in fellowship without this figure of the cross. For the sea cannot be traversed unless the sign of victory, which is called a sail, remain fast in the ship. The land is not plowed without it. Similarly, diggers and mechanics do not do their work except with tools of this form. The human figure differs from the irrational animals precisely in this, that man stands erect and can stretch out his hands and has on his face stretched down from the forehead what is called the nose, through which goes breath for the living creature. And this exhibits precisely the figure of the cross. And so um, I think so beautifully, St. Justin, really what he's saying here is that we are, he's sort of verifying that we're made in the image and likeness of God, the image and likeness of Jesus, to the extent that we see his um, sacrificial death in our form. Um, and throughout um, visible creation, the universal power of the cross. Um, I want to um, stay in the early uh, Christian era and go to the catacombs, which I had the blessing to visit a, a few times. And this is one of my uh, most favorite catacomb images. It's a Madonna and child image uh, dated to about 150 AD. A uh, little hard to make out at first, but as you kind of uh, ponder it for a while, it starts to become more clear. But it's an image of our Blessed Mother. In fact, um, she's not only holding the Christ child, but she's breastfeeding him. And so that certainly gets across the point that she was truly a mother and that Christ truly became human, took on a human nature. Um, and the figure um, to, her, uh, to the left there is believed to be uh, one of the prophets, perhaps prophet Isaiah. And in his gospel, uh, St. Matthew writes, he quotes Isaiah saying, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so in portraying um, this image of, of the Christ child with his mother, we see the importance of the incarnation to the early Christians, that they, this idea of God with us, of Emmanuel, that he had come to be what we are to be with us, um, that he wasn't like the gods of old who stood aloof from us, but wanted to experience our life with us. And you know, we have to remember that these artists um, rendering these images um, were very much working in um, conditions that might be comparable to like a coal mine, you know, with extremes of heat and cold, um, you know, in, in, in utter darkness. Um, but for their, of course, their, uh, their torchlight. But even more than that, though, they, they were working with the fear that they could uh, be found out and, and arrested and, and uh, put to death. Um, and also, uh, I have to say, at this time, of course, the catacombs was an underground uh, cemetery. And so they were dealing with the, the smell of the decaying corpses. I think it was St. Jerome that mentioned in the fourth century that a visit to the catacombs resembled more a, a visit to hell than a visit to heaven because of these extremes. And so we see the devotion of these artists to go down there and decorate these, um, these burial sites in this way. And finally, of course, we see the importance of our Blessed Mother to the early Christians. You know, Mary, they, they readily recognized, as St. Matthew did in his Gospel, as he acknowledges, that Mary in her person and who she is verifies who Jesus is. Mary. Uh, in being at once both virgin and mother, 
that she is virgin, that Christ did not have an earthly father, verifies he's God. That she is mother, that he did not have an earthly, I'm sorry, that he did have an earthly mother, uh, verifies that he is truly man. This is another image from the catacombs, a little later than the previous one. This is about 300, dated to about 300 AD. And this is the uh, gospel story of the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage. And the thing I want to point out here uh, in this image is that we see um, Christ not looking away from the woman who has come in, through the crowd to touch him. And notice, by the way, the artist, uh, don't know if this was intentional or not, but left out, remember in the story that there was a crowd surrounding Jesus. But here, the crowd has been omitted, and we only see the woman and, and Christ. And again, I don't know if that was intentional, you know, or uh, just kind of a happy accident, but it certainly, for me, looking at it, um, highlights uh, that, that intimacy of that, um, that revelation of, of that woman with Christ. And we see here that he's a God that notices us, acknowledges us, and that he's a God that can be touched. And in fact, that she received the healing through, uh, by touching the, uh, the cloth of his garment, which has a sacramental quality to it. Um, and so I think there's something uh, instructive if we, if we want to compare this and contrast this image to the earlier one of Apollo, that we see that uh, whereas Apollo was looking away from the earth, Jesus not only is turning to look back, but in not only making eye contact with a woman, but extending his sacred hand to grab hold of her and elevate her up to where he is. And so we see with, with Christ, with the advent of Christian art, we see the advent of compassion, the desire for our Savior to suffer with us. <clears throat> And so I want to talk a little bit about the sacramental principle, this idea of the invisible made visible, uh, and which is built upon the church's belief in the incarnation, that central teaching of our faith, that in Christ, the invisible God became visible. Um, and as Justin the Martyr indicated, the sacramental principle exists in man, that there's something about us and about uh, physical creation where the invisible realities are somehow manifest through us that we become, um, the, the physical becomes symbolic, becomes a sign of the, uh, the invisible and the spiritual. And that the sacramental principle exists in art. You know, all art begins, everything that was made by the artist at one point existed merely as an invisible mind, I'm sorry, invisible idea, invisible thought in the artist's mind. Um, you know, and, and that, we can, ex extend that beyond even fine art just to say even with design and you know, everything that we see you know even here in this room the chairs you know the microphone the light bulbs the picture frames everything that we see here was designed it's it's here because someone somewhere using their gift of creativity had an idea to, to design it that way and that's not something we should take for granted because again that's a uniquely human quality and certainly animals will build things, but they only build things that they're programmed to build from instinct. And it always has a utilitarian purpose. There's no reason why um, the, the chair that you're sitting on had to be designed exactly as it is. It could have been made to function, you know, just to sit on without having much of a design to it. But the artist who designed it wanted to give, he had a, a sense he wanted to relay um, beauty 
you know, something uh, of, uh, pleasurable about the experience of seeing and sitting in that chair. Um, you know, while animals build things, we don't see them decorating their, you know, as G.K. Chesterton indicated, decorating the things that they build the way that we do. We will never see, you know, a beaver will build a dam, but they will not paint the ceiling of their dam the way that Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, again, that all, all religions produce art, but Christianity alone um, has the incarnation. And so be, for that reason, um, I think that we, we have a special relationship and understanding to art of, of, because art is really the invisible idea being made visible, which certainly reflects the incarnation. Um, <clears throat> and art has this uh, wonderful ability to make these invisible concepts of truth, goodness, and beauty visible to us. Um, also, that when we, you know, the artist in creating things, I like to, uh, it, it seems evident to me that the artist is really like a, a child imitating his or her father, the creator. You know, there's something about the creation of art that points to creatio ex nihilo, God's creation of all things from nothingness, that it, at one point, uh, all of us and everything merely in, existed as an invisible idea in the creator's mind. Um, and to try to reflect on this, um, and I have to say also, as you'll see, it'll become clear from the reading, to score some points with my wife, uh, I, I, I wrote this in the book. Um, in light of the incarnation, material things have taken on an emblematic character, bearing a significance beyond their outward form. The things which we see in this world point to the things which we cannot see in the next. A woman may be beautiful, and here's the uh, tribute to my wife. A woman may be beautiful, but she is not in fact beauty itself. Rather, she communicates beauty to the world. What is beauty after all? In attempting to define it, one tends to resort to describing merely beautiful things. But beauty is not a material thing. It is an ethereal concept. Still, the man beholding his wife, that's me, could, could rightly claim to behold beauty. She, while not beauty itself, has the power to make beauty, the unreal concept, real to him. In a sense, she incarnates beauty, sacramentalizes it. Otherwise, how would her husband, a being dependent upon the senses, ever come to comprehend it? And so Art has this wonderful uh, uh, ability to make visible to us these concepts and make them more real, that we all know that they exist, but we have a hard time sort of putting our finger on what it exactly is. In his uh, address to artist Pope Paul VI at the close of the Second Vatican Council, he said, it is beauty like truth, which brings joy to the heart of man, and is that precious fruit which resists the wear and tear of time, which unites generations and makes them share things in admiration. And all of this is through your hands. He's writing to, to artists. All of this is through your hands. Remember that you are the guardians of beauty in the world. So we see there the, the um, high opinion that the Holy Father has of artists and of, and of art itself. This um, icon, Christ Pentocrator, from the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai is um, dated to about 550 AD. It's believed to be 
the earliest um, artistic representation of our Lord and uh, the oldest existing icon of Jesus. And in this picture, um, the image of our Lord exudes omnipotence uh, by virtue of who he is. Uh, as uh, C.S. Lewis would say, he's the summing up and actuality of all um, mythology and history and all religion. He, Jesus is the summing up of all of it. Um, Kurt Weitzman, a prominent scholar of ancient art, said, um, writing about this image, he said, the Lord's gaze into the distance produces an effect of remoteness and timelessness, a visual expression of the divine nature. Um, and we also have our Lord's sacred humanity um, expressed here in the uh, lack of precise symmetry. Okay, if we notice there's a dichotomy in the facial features, there's really two halves of the face which reveal um, Christ's divinity and, and humanity. In particular, the, on the right side of his face, we see his justice. And the left, on the left, we see his mercy. The Cathedral Notre Dame in France, um, I make the point in the book that uh, uh, I, I kind of um, uh, say that the, uh, the term Dark Ages is, is an unfortunate term. It's really a Protestant pejorative term with uh, anti-Catholic overtones, you know, and uh, I make the point in the book to say that the age that gave us the cathedral and the university um, is really not rightly called, described as dark, you know, and certainly, you know, when we look at these cathedrals, these, the true sacred spaces designed to facilitate the encounter of the soul with God, with the Creator, and so the um, the artist and the architect really wanted to get across the, the experience that we're entering into God's presence. And everything about the design, you know, from the vertical thrust to the, uh, the repetition of the pointed archways and the, the ribbed vaults and some of them even um, resembling arrowheads and, and triangles pointing upward. They're all divine, uh, designed rather to point our eyes heavenward. And we can see here that the, the artist uh, had, um, were working out of, a, um, uh, out of a true humility that recognizes our true um, relationship with God, that, you know, understanding God's greatness and our utter dependence on Him. This is um, The Lamentation of Christ by the artist Giotto in 1306. And Giotto is um, often referred to as the father of the Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance. Um, Michelangelo's student Vasari, who is a well-known, um, famous art historian, described poor Giotto as the ugliest man to walk the streets of Florence. Um, I don't know much about that, but I can tell you that he was certainly uh, a genius, artistic genius, and a precursor to the Renaissance man, and that he was a master of um, many different disciplines, um, especially of uh, painting and also of architecture. He is famous for designing the bell tower in the city of Florence, which in my opinion, and opinion of many, is uh, one of the most beautiful buildings um, in the world. And so in this painting, you know, Giotto um, should say in all of his paintings, he really is a master storyteller. He really thrives as catechist and, and evangelist in telling a story. And he uses the elements of the composition to do that. Um, for one thing, you know, being a good artist, he wants to lead our eye almost like a director you know, of, of a uh, symphony. He wants to lead our eye 
around the composition. He wants to be in control of what we're looking at and, and how much time we're spending you know, in, in each area of the painting. So how does he do that? Well, one way is you see the repetition of form with the, the halos, the repetition of the halo shape throughout. But you notice too that he wants to, at a certain point, direct us to, um, to the main area of the composition. He doesn't want us to wander about it aimlessly. And one of the ways that he does that is to have the line of vision of some of the main characters in the foreground directed towards um, the central image of, of Christ and the Blessed Mother. And I want to say that Giotto, I know we have some theater uh, people here, which I'm very happy to have them with us tonight. Giotto's um, paintings, Giotto is definitely an artist if you're not familiar with and you're in the theater that you want to check out. His paintings really have a theater um, stage-like quality to them where the, uh, um, the almost said actors, but the figures in the, in the scene really do appear as, as players on a stage. And to the point where the back, um, background, the, the, uh, the houses and the, and the landscape and so forth are on a smaller scale than the people, so they appear sort of as like a stage set. And notice that um, as we're going around the composition, the, uh, notice the anguish, the tremendous anguish that's portrayed in the angels compared you know, to the, that which we see in the, the people down on earth, and really in the, the wrenching of their, their forms and so forth. And we certainly see grief in the, the human beings as well. You know, St. John throwing his, his arms back and we see their tearful expressions. Um, another thing that he does is he frames in that cameo of the Pieta in the, the center, of Christ and the Blessed Mother, by the two women in the foreground who have their backs turned to us. Um, the fancy term for that is repressoire device or framing device. And then the figures in the background behind our Lord. And so he uses these they're not just placed there arbitrarily, but they're used to frame in that, uh, that central image where, where he means for us to, to look. So if um, Giotto was the uh, precursor to the Renaissance man, Leonardo da Vinci was uh, the consummate uh, or fulfillment of the Renaissance man. And this, of course, is probably his uh, best loved or second best loved or well-known work, The Last Supper, um, perhaps second to the Mona Lisa. Um, he was um, a master, is, is well known, of, of many different disciplines. It's kind of funny because we tend to think of him primarily as a painter today, but he first and foremost would describe himself and considered himself in his time a military engineer. And uh, if you ever have a chance to see some of his sketches of some of his military devices, which I have to say are brilliant but, but terrible at the same time, but you can certainly see the, the depth of his creative mind at, at work. Um, but Renaissance, uh, of course, from the French word meaning rebirth, was about a rediscovery of uh, classical learning and art making. And uh, from our perspective, you know, the artists had rediscovered things like linear perspective, which we see so beautifully uh, exhibited in this painting. And um, Leonardo really used these um, compositional elements, as, as Giotto did, and really is all successful artists do to, to tell his story, to enhance his storytelling. In particular, you know, he uh, selected the uh, dramatic moment from the Last Supper where Christ announces that one of his, one of the apostles will betray him and they're, you know, asking amongst themselves, is it me? And, you know, um, I, I would not betray you, Lord. But we see that um, the, the architectural lines in the, uh, in the room, in the, in the composition, all are designed to um, to point to our Lord. You know, the linear perspective 
um, is a system of drawing where all the lines converge to an invisible vanishing point on the horizon, which Leonardo positions um, directly behind our Lord, or rather, I should say, positions our Lord um, over top of the vanishing point, and in that way, I think, associates him with infinity. And then, of course, you know, um, by grouping the apostles um, in you know, equal groups of three on either side of him, these are ways where um, the artist Leonardo um, hones in our attention where he wants us to, to look. Um, one of my favorite uh, Leonardo paintings, The Virgin of the Rocks, um, he was a marvelous uh, painter of light and dark. The Italian term is chiaroscuro, and uh, it really uh, refers to the smoky kind of veil-like uh, uh, light and dark that uh, has a very mysterious, uh, very, like a sense of mystery to it, very mysterious quality to it. Um, I, I think of uh, St. Paul's words, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So this approach of um, the subtlety with Leonardo's handling of light seems very appropriate for uh, religious and spiritual themes. And then in this painting, we see that the um, image of the Blessed Mother provides a compositional uh, foundation um, to the work. The figures are arranged in kind of a pyramidal, um, very solid pyramidal form. And look at the gorgeous uh, interplay of the hands. Our Blessed Mother's hand, which seems to be blessing the, uh, the others, and then the, the hand of the angel pointing to our Lord, and that's the little baby there is St. John the Baptist, um, blessing his cousin, uh, Jesus. And so look at the, uh, the wonderful relationship of the hands, and then the hands and also the, the line of vision of, of the figures, of course, points to Jesus. Um, except for the, the angel, where she's looking out at us. And any time that you see that in a painting, typically the artist is trying to get your attention as the viewer. Hey, look here. You know, he's saying to you, this is important. And the, so the angel's looking at you and then pointing to Jesus. You know? And I wanted to include a little sketch here, a uh, marvelous uh, rendering here, a study for this painting that Leonardo did of the face of the angel. Look at the um, subtlety of the light. Um, washing over the face, and the, um, he had an insatiable curiosity, particularly for growing things. He loved drawing, you know, curling vines, and look at the locks of the hair, and uh, the fabric, the, the subtleties in the fabric, and um, just, just really uh, marvelous to, to look at. So uh, Michelangelo, and of course I could spend the rest of the time talking about him and about the, this one work, the Pieta, which uh, is probably my personal favorite. Um, he was uh, 23 years old when he completed this work, and I remember as a young art student, we would uh, had a sort of um, notion that, uh, you know, we weren't quite 23 yet, and uh, in a couple years we'd be able to do something like this, you know. Uh, 23 came and went, and uh, no, no pietas, but uh, I think that we can um, look at this and uh, Again, we have a tendency to, to take it for granted because of the time we live in to see a perfectly smooth, uh, I hesitate to use the word manufactured, but, but manufactured surface. Um, you know, we're, we live in an age where we'll see, you know, shiny car hoods and kitchen appliances and, and skyscraper windows. And so it's not such a big deal to us. But in his time, Michelangelo, Michelangelo's age, for the people to see this was just, a revelation, you know, and, uh, and even, you know, as we're looking at it, we have to remind ourselves we're looking at a rock. 
a carved rock, you know, and certainly if you see some close-ups, and I do have a few close-ups coming up of this, um, you know, you, to see the veins in the arm. And I think it's kind of interesting. It's been speculated that he portrays our Lord's um, arm. Now, of course, he was a master of anatomy, but he portrays the arm as though blood is still um, coursing through the veins. And is that an indication of the resurrection? Um, I want to uh, share with you, as, as we're looking at some images of this, uh, a story which my grandfather had told me about this, uh, this work when I was a young man. This, again, is a quote from, from my book. The rather miraculous ability of art to convey the invisible was movingly demonstrated in a story which my grandfather used to tell involving a replica he once saw as a young man of Michelangelo's Pieta, the image of Mary holding her dead son's body upon her lap. It was a tabletop replica displayed across the room from where he had been standing, which he felt compelled to approach. As he drew closer, he realized that what was drawing him near was the virgin's outstretched hand. And as he stood transfixed before the statue, the gesture of the hand communicated to him something profound. Mary seemed to say to me, he recalled, look what I gave the world and look what they gave me back. All the many lectures, books, and commentaries on art and religion I have attended and read over the years have failed to touch me as deeply as this simple yet sublime revelation of my grandfather. One knows instantly upon hearing it that it came from God. And how did God communicate it? Through a bit of compressed dust, a physical substance, which he inspired one of his creatures to carve into the shape of a human hand. So when we're talking about Michelangelo as catechist, as evangelist, how does Michelangelo evangelize us in this work? How does he draw us in to tell us the story of Christ's sacrifice. It's through the expression of his mother's hand. This is the return of the prodigal son by uh, Rembrandt from the Baroque period. And the Baroque period, uh, again, for the benefit of those of you here from the theater tonight, from the theater department, uh, is a very theatrical art, uh, movement in art. We, the images that we see in the Baroque, there's uh, very much a sense of uh, stage lighting, um, of spotlighting, uh, with the, uh, especially with Rembrandt, with the uh, extravagant costumes, um, and with the dramatic positioning of the figures and so forth. The Baroque was, in many people's estimation, mine included, was the high point of man's endeavors in art. The Baroque artist really took the, uh, what the artist in the Renaissance, the age before, had rediscovered and, and had mastered. Uh, the Baroque artist took those things and just really took off with them, you know, flew with them. And they uh, stood on the shoulders of those uh, geniuses from the Renaissance. And so Rembrandt um, uses light in a theatrical way. And, uh, and by the way, uh, similar to to the Leonardo uh, image we looked at a minute ago, we see again um, the, the father, you know, presented, in, um, I want to say rendered in a very sturdy uh, triangular way here to give solidity to the, to the composition. But Rembrandt will also use light, as I started to say, to direct our eye to uh, the different uh, parts of the painting. Where does he want us to look first? Where's the main part 
the secondary, you know, where does he want us to look third, fourth, fifth, and so forth. And then again, how does he bring us back? You know, we go to, uh, from the Father, we notice that, that beautiful um, uh, small rectangle or panel of light on the Father's forehead, giving that Father that uh, image of nobility. Uh, next we go down to his Son, right? And there's the spotlight you see on the ground about the two of them. And then thirdly, we go to the, the elder Son. And then finally to the figures in the background. And look how that, that fifth figure back there... Um, just kind of, I uh, should say sixth figure, counting the father and the, and the prodigal son as one. But look, look how beautifully that figure is just barely discernible out of the shadows. It's you know, there, but, but uh, really kind of fades into the distance. But you'll notice that the Rembrandt uses, the, again, the line of sight for these other secondary characters to bring us back to the father and the son. Um, the uh, Vatican's general directory for catechesis talks about the crucial importance of the personal relationship of the catechist to the subject, that the catechist um, performs the role as mediator between the people and the mystery of God, in that way being an image of Christ. And so the effective catechist is one who can relate well to the student. And Jesus, we call him the one mediator, actually St. Paul does, and uh, us in imitation of Paul. Um, we use that terminology because Jesus... He is the one mediator because he uniquely is both God and man. And so, of course, he has a perfect understanding of both. And Jesus, as um, the parable of the prodigal son so, so wonderfully shows us, he can relate to our human weakness and, and understands our brokenness. And I think Rembrandt did as well. You know, Rembrandt was um, the first artist really to portray biblical people. Um, not as like superheroes, you know, muscle-bound uh, heroes, but as everyday people, um, transformed by grace. The uh, Penitent Magdalene, another work from the, uh, from the Baroque period uh, by George de la Torre. Again, we see light used in a very dramatic way. And here, the uh, interplay of the light and dark, I think, is communicating um, what in... Religious circles, we would call the two ways teaching, you know, that there are two choices before us, the way of life and the way of death. And here we have the saint contemplating that. Um, this um, style of painting, the old master technique, the artist would start the image by painting a monochromatic um, uh, underpainting and then add the color through successive layers, multiple layers of transparent colored film. And... Uh, it would take a while for those uh, layers to dry, and the artist would sit there in the studio and observe and contemplate the, um, the image and, and would, would, would really grow more deeply in, in his understanding of what he was looking at. And so I think of this technique as just, um, you know, so perfect for um, portraying subjects of, of uh, relig religious depth and beauty. The... Um, Still Life with Ginger Jar by uh, Willem Kauf is, uh, comes from the genre which we call vanitas, uh, vanity paintings, meant to show the, the, uh, specifically the vanity of earthly possessions. So here, I, I think in a certain sense, we're seeing the vanity of the artist and showing off a little bit how you know, he, art had progressed to the point where they could really render things to look super real. You know? and, and he's, in a certain sense, you know, look at how I can do, you know, the jeweled goblets and the drapery and, 
and the fruit and so forth, the different textures. But it's meant to portray um, how we're meant to have a sense as we're looking at this that someone had just been sitting at the table and has suddenly gotten up. So you see like the lemon peel you know, dangling over the edge of the table. So the idea is, you know, to put it in um, colloquial terms, you know, you can't take it with you. Um, as I uh, say in, in the book, that Vanitas was a pretty way to express an unpleasant reality. So now I want to um, move on to the modern uh, age, and this is really the uh, first modern painting by uh, Edward Manet. He's really, in uh, some ways, looked at as the father of uh, French Impressionism. And um, there's two disting distinguishing modern traits in this work that I want to point out. One is the departure from classical artistic standards, the academic standards. And what do I, what I mean by that? Because it certainly, you know, is still a very beautiful painting. Um, certainly, he, we can see he has a lot of uh, technical virtuosity. But if we were to compare this side by side, it's very hard to see in a slide, but if you were to get up close and to the point where you can see the brush, brushwork, you would see that if you could compare this, let's say, to uh, Leonardo's Virgin of the Rocks, you would see that Leonardo very meticulously worked to hide his brush strokes, um, even to the point where he would you know, um, smooth them over with his fingertips and so forth, to have a very polished um, looking surface. And whereas Manet's brush strokes, he doesn't mind letting the brush strokes show. He wants, he does, he's not afraid to let the process of the art making show through. And I kind of make the point in the book that that's a little bit analogous to like a magician taking us all backstage and showing us how he does his tricks, his magic acts. You know, and so, and I think that that's partly attributable to, um, it, it's in part the artist kind of thumbing his nose at the, at the, um, at the, at the academy, you know, the um, artistic authority of the day. But I think also it's uh, reflected the fact that they were no longer, they had a sense they're no longer producing work for God or for the church, but it's for me. And so it doesn't have to be perfect, you know. So departure from the classical artistic standards is the first modern trait in art. The second thing is the desire to shock the viewer. And this image may or may not seem particularly shocking to us. Um, these were actual people, you know, contemporaries. The artist himself is the um, central uh, figure there. Um, he's the one with clothes on. Uh, and, and that's an interesting point, too, by the way, that what's shocking about this, I think, is the fact that the woman sitting next to him, who, again, was someone that the, uh, his contemporaries knew who that was, okay? And she's... She's uh, fully naked, but she's not averting her glance from the viewer. She's looking directly at the viewer, and in a way, she's, that's really kind of a shirking of the virtue of modesty. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm naked, but what about it, you know? And also, as I said, you know, she, she is naked, but the men in the painting have clothes on. And I, I think that that's just really uh, an objectification of woman um, that is disturbing. And it, it's unfortunate, I think, that that it doesn't seem so scandalous to us today, but it certainly was in his time. Um, and I want to say, and we'll see this as we go on a little bit here, that going back to that earlier point of the departure from the artistic, um, classical artistic methods, that the artist started to explore art by uh, gradually subtracting some of the classical methods of making art from their painting. Like, for instance, drawing. Drawing would become less important, the element of drawing. 
um, or you know, as we talked about with the brush strokes, um, the depth of the painting and, and so forth. They would gradually start taking out these elements of the composition. And we're going to see the effect of that become uh, more, um, much more discernible as we go on here. But I make the point that it's kind of expiration via subtraction. And I, I make the point in the book, the, the analogy of it's sort of like designing a room by removing a piece of the furniture at a time. And that might be exciting and thrilling to do that for a while, you know, but if you're not careful, you end up with no place to sit and you end up with an empty room. Before we move on to a few other works, I want to um, contrast this work with the Pieta. You might wonder what the two have to do with, with one another. In particular, I want to talk of the two different views of love portrayed by these works. In uh, Manet's work, we really see worldly love, or eros, which is really based on a selfishness. I will love you to the extent that I can get something from you. you know? Again, we're talking about that objectification of woman. Whereas in the Pieta, we see a heavenly love, or agape, which is built on self-sacrifice or selflessness. We see Christ, of course, giving himself for all of us, giving his life. No greater love has a man than to give his life for his friends, giving his life for all of us. And we see the Blessed Mother um, sacrificing her son, giving up that right of every mother to protect her child from harm, but uh, willingly giving up that, uh, that right to protect her child for love of us. This is... Um, Edward Mon or rather Claude Monet, it's uh, easy to get Manet and Monet confused, but Monet uh, was a follower of Manet, and he was one of the group that we call the French Impressionists. It might be uh, most people's favorite uh, period in art. And certainly there were many, many uh, wonderful, beautiful uh, masterpieces produced by this group of Impressionists. And Manet, um, there we go again, Monet is uh, many people's favorites. Um, this is his Rouen Cathedral. He had a um, fascination with light and shadow, and what he would do is he would set up um, several canvases, you know, three or four canvases in a certain spot, in the same spot, and he would uh, paint the same subject in slightly changing light. So he would set up his canvases in front of the cathedral, and maybe at the same time each day, and then every 15 minutes he would move to the next canvas as the light slowly changed. Um, I don't know if it was exactly 15 minutes, but you get the point. That, and so we have these wonderful series from him of the same subject seen in changing light. Um, but I have to say, though, there's also the sense in looking at his paintings, especially this one. You know, he also did you know, paintings of water lilies he's famous for and um, haystacks and, and, and other things. But this painting of, of a cathedral, of, of a place of worship, we get the sense that for him it really was just an object just a study of light and dark, that he had launched, it was merely a superficial study, that there's no real sense of what the purpose of the cathedral is. Um, now Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh is uh, one of two, I'll talk about him and Picasso, uh, in, in my humble opinion, one of the two legitimate uh, geniuses, artistic geniuses of the modern age. And I describe uh, Van Gogh, particularly this painting, as being modern but with a classical soul. So you know, what do I mean by that? It's modern in its approach, that it certainly is a departure from, from the classical artistic methods. And that, by the way, was not necessarily on purpose. Van Gogh, though he certainly had an artistic genius with color and texture and so forth, 
but he really struggled with the fact that he could not imitate the works of the old masters. He really wanted to, but did not have the ability. But certainly the genius that he had was, was wonderful in its own right. And, uh, but, but secondly, um, I say that it's, it's classical in its soul because it asks the universal questions. One of the um, things we see with modern art is that getting away from the universal story of who we are, asking those questions, who am I, where did I come from, where, where am I going, to more of a personal expression. In other words, the artist is gradually becoming less and less interested with having a conversation with the viewer and teaching the viewer. He or she is more interested in saying something personal about me that we may or may not be able to really relate to, you know, and that certainly uh, may not have anything to do with those deeper, more universal questions. But with Van Gogh, we see him asking the question, particularly I think in this painting, of who am I? What's, what's the meaning of all this? And I don't say that he necessarily presents the answer, but we can certainly see him seeking. And I, I think um, we need to appreciate that about his work. This is a contemporary of Van Gogh, a very famous painting, uh, Edvard Munch's The Scream. And here we see a modern man in isolation that, you know, is um, the book of Genesis and, and all the sacred scripture um, confirm for us that we were meant not to exist in isolation, but in community. That mankind was meant, you know, man and woman, the creation, right at the beginning of our creation, were meant to come together and to complement one another. And I think what uh, one of the bad fruits of the Enlightenment, the so-called Enlightenment, as I like to say, was this um, uh, situation of um, uh, progressive isolation. Of we, we lose the sense of being able, we lose, we have less and less in common with one another. We have less and less of a common interest. We have uh, less and less um, community. And I think that um, this individual, the artist is reflecting here in this painting, the human soul alienated from that universal story. And when, when, we're, when we're alienated from that story, we lose sense of the meaning of life. And he's just kind of screaming, calling out, what's the point of all of it, you know? The, um, the uh, science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, I'll read a uh, brief quote from him, he said, who was a self-proclaimed atheist, he writes, although the time of death is approaching in me, I am not afraid of dying and going to hell, or what would be considerably worse, going to the popularized version of heaven. I expect death to be nothingness, and for removing me from all possible fears of death, I am thankful to atheism. And I think we kind of have to read between the lines there, and I, you know, without meaning any disrespect to, to Isaac Asimov, but I, I really, I can't, fully believe that there's sincerity in what he's saying. Because what rational mind would really look forward to and welcome the idea of, of nothingness, of non-existence? Um, Kata Kollwitz, um, German printmaker from the uh, early part of the 20th century, um, this is an image of hers, a mother with a dead child. She really portrayed a lot of the human suffering uh, that was going on in her country of Germany at this time. And we see a lot of images of uh, mothers with you know, starving children or, or um, dying children. And I want to um, compare um, this work with the, uh, with the previous one of, of the screen. And really two different versions of the human person that are being portrayed here. And you could even say two different understandings of love. In the, in the one, on the one hand, rather, 
of the screen, you see the man, um, the individual, the soul in isolation, um, having lost contact with the other. In Kata Kolvitz's work, you see the um, mother, you know, clutching her son, try, attempting almost to draw him back within herself, almost willing to give her life, to breathe life back into him. And so it's a living for the other. It's um, making the other more important than, than oneself. And so we see there a very Christ-like um, uh, understanding of love, a very Christ-like image. The other um, genius, artistic genius of the modern age, as I had mentioned, is Pablo Picasso. And this is a work from his Cubist period, Majoli. And um, Picasso certainly is, can be difficult to interpret and understand at first. Um, one of the um, wonderful revelations from my uh, art school days was to see, uh, to have the fortune of seeing some of Picasso's early drawings. He actually could draw and draw very well. And in fact, he had a ac very strong academic um, uh, learning, um, education in art. And in fact, his father, I believe, had been a professor in art. And I think as the story goes that when um, Picasso was uh, a teenager, was 16 years old, he could paint in, an, in the old master style. And his father, seeing the work of his son, you know, stopped painting himself. Um, but Picasso became uh, dissatisfied with, with working in that way, and, and so he, he did progress to more abstract uh, imagery. But I think with him it was a legitimate progression, you know, and I think that it's important with him that he started with the uh, classical, and I think that his academic training really lends a solidity and a, a, a firmness to even his abstract work, a structure much in the same way that, that a frame to a house adds structure to the house. But as I say with the, um, in my book that the problem with modern art is that there are precious few Picassos. You know, the generation of artists that followed him started where he left off. And as I say in the book that um, abstraction, artistic abstraction is a wonderful place to end an artistic journey, but it's a rather miserable place to begin one because where do you go from there? You know, your, your um, possibilities are rather limited, as we're going to find out. So here we have um, really only uh, the, the Picasso painting was 1912. This is 1918. Um, Kazimir Malevich's White on White. And this is, again, the progression, uh, logical progression of that minimalistic approach of gradually eliminating elements, compositional elements from painting. And here, what do we have left? You know, shape. And, and not even really color, you know, it's like white and off-white. And what we have here is that um, it's kind of like a, a kind of painted nihilism, you know? It's like there's a certain um, futility and meaninglessness in this work. What is the artist really saying that's, that's really a value? Uh, there's certainly not a story being told anymore, you know? And um, Jackson Pollock, uh, this is about 1950. It's exactly 1950. Uh, his Lavender Mist, number one. And so we have that minimalist progression continuing to the point where the artist has eliminated the brush itself. And, uh, you know, he's literally dripping the paint on the canvas. And to the point where, you know, he had the, um, the, the nickname of being, they called him uh, Jack the Dripper. And he, he found himself continually having to, to insist to his, uh, to his peers that he was in control of the paint. But it's certainly there's, um, 
uh, you know, it's a um, non-coherent quality to this work. There's not a real coherent story. Um, there's also an artistic elitism here where there's a, a, a development of an artistic lingo in these works where you really almost have to be educated in art to be able to have these works speak to you in any way. And even I have to tell you, as someone who holds two degrees in art, I don't know if even that uh, is tremendously helpful. But, uh, you know, it's one way to look at this, you know, we could think of creation, and we talked about the artist as, as emulating the creator. Uh, creation is about um, imposing order on chaos. And I think a lot of uh, some of the modern arts and the abstract arts are about imposing chaos on order. <clears throat> it's kind of, a, in a way, an, an anti-creation. And so um, I want to go back to Michelangelo for a minute, to his last judgment. And uh, this is a painting we saw a lot uh, recently. It's in the Sistine Chapel on the altar wall with the election of Pope Francis. And um, it's really um, an impressive work. In fact, uh, as the story goes, when Michelangelo revealed this painting um, to the Pope, to Pope Paul III, the Pope was so awestruck by this work that the Pope fell down on his knees and began to beg God for mercy on, on his day of judgment. Um, we see so many, uh, there's you know, hundreds of figures in the painting. I'll take a look at a couple of the little vignettes that we see here. Down at the bottom, we see this um, figure in hell, one of the demons in hell, that bears a uh, striking resemblance to one of Michelangelo's contemporaries, uh, in particular the uh, Pope's master of ceremonies, the Cardinal Biagio, who is someone who had criticized the work, the nudity in the work, and there certainly is a place, by the way, for artistic nudity. Uh, Michelangelo, different than Manet, who we talked about earlier with his luncheon on the grass, Michelangelo was really trying to portray man and his beauty as being made in the image and likeness of God. And it's kind of like an early uh, theology of the body, you know. But uh, nonetheless, so Biagio had criticized this, uh, went to the Pope and said, you know, uh, we got to do something about this. And Michelangelo held a grudge. And so he portrayed him as a demon in hell. And so Biagio went to the Pope and complained, and uh, Pope Paul III famously said to him, I, I cannot uh, help you. He said, while I have the power to release you from purgatory, I have no power to release you from hell. And so poor Biagio remains, his image remains to this day. He didn't want to get on the wrong side of Michelangelo. Uh, we see it, you know, throughout the work, we see images of uh, figures being either drawn down to hell by demons. This, this poor guy here. And... Uh, one of my favorite uh, sections of the painting is we have people being drawn up to heaven. In this case, we see two souls being drawn up by an angel by rosary beads, if you can make it out there. And uh, in the, uh, the center, we have Christ. But it's Christ as we're not accustomed to seeing him in art. It's Christ as the, um, as the victorious uh, judge, the triumphant Christ. He looks almost like a Hercules, you know, the beardless uh, Hercules figure. Blessed Mother at his side, at his right-hand side. She's in a prayerful um, interceding for the people below. And we see Christ raising his right hand, ushering the elect up to heaven with his left hand, condemning the, uh, the damned to hell. And I think that uh, one thing I want to share with you that I think is so appropriate for this image is Our Lady's words from the Magnificat, from, uh, from the Gospels. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. I think when we're looking at um, the, uh, the last judgment that, and when we're, we're thinking about it in a religious sense, it's not so much, the last judgment's not so much about um, God rewarding or punishing us for what we've done in life or failed to do. It's more about the choice that we've, you know, our decision that we've made with our life either for God or, or apart from Him. The fact that it's a decision, that our, our uh, final um, um, uh, ending, where we end up, is a decision, really makes it fully human, authentically human, that we have that power to choose for ourselves. One other image I want to show you from this one is um, what modern scholars have found is Michelangelo's self-portrait. This is um, the figure of Christ and the Blessed Mother surrounded by martyrs and saints holding the emblems of their martyrdom. Here we have St. Bartholomew, the apostle who was um, skinned alive, and he's holding um, a knife in the one hand and his disembodied skin. In the disembodied skin, we, the, we see an image of Michelangelo's face. We notice in particular the broken nose. Michelangelo uh, famously, um, in bragging to another student when he was a boy, um, had his nose broken, but uh, um, we see Michelangelo's humility and him portraying himself in that way. And um, I just want to um, conclude by giving you a few images. One of the things I neglected to do in the book that I wish I had done, you know, in, in hindsight, was to give more of a sense of what is the state of sacred art today. And we're looking at images of La Sagrada Familia, the uh, wonderful architectural um, uh, accomplishment by an, an Antonio Gaudi which actually was started about a little over 100 years ago, just finished recently in 2010. But um, I want to leave you with a few images of a sense of where modern, uh, sacred art has progressed since the Renaissance and Baroque period. And certainly when we're looking at uh, Sagrada Familia, we're seeing an organic structure, something that appears to be growing, but it also has a design look to it. It's not something that's merely there. And I think, uh, so we're talking about uh, intelligent design, if you will, and I think the artist uh, in that way is um, giving homage not just to nature, but to nature's creator. There's also, you know, if you look at the repetition, mathematical um, repetition of the images and, and so forth, the forms on the ceiling, there's a, it's an artistic representation of infinity, you know, and certainly really draws us into uh, to the mystical experience in, in God's house. Certainly the Passion of the Christ, you know, a cinematic masterpiece, in my humble opinion, um, from 2004. We see a lot of Baroque and Caravaggio-esque images in this, this movie with the lighting and the, um, the, the staging and so forth. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, this movie really fulfills a challenge. The general directory um, for catechesis had talked about the importance of... Um, using the mass media for evangelization. And Pope Paul III and uh, Evangeli uh, Nuntiandi talked about the mass media um, or means of social communication as being indispensable to catechesis and really encouraging artists, uh, sacred artists, to, make, um, to avail themselves of those things. Um, it was kind of interesting here uh, with, with the uh, Passion of the Christ, we have postmodern man being confronted again by the universal story that in large part has been forgotten. It's not gone away, of course. It's still written on our heart, but we've lost touch with it. And it was kind of interesting that it, in, in the, when the movie was released, we had a lot of uh, some of the atheists like um, Christopher Hitchens and so forth 
criticizing the violence in the movie, which they saw as gratuitous. They really couldn't understand, you know, why there was so much violence in this movie and seemed, you know, sadistic. Well, that was because they were interpreting the violence uh, apart from any understanding of the redemption and the atonement. And, you know, apart from, from the reality of who Christ is. And of course, we know his suffering had tremendous meaning. You know, it was um, complete meaning for us. Um, and I want to end with this um, wonderful artist I've uh, discovered recently, and she works in the Pittsburgh area, Anne Schmalstig, who's uh, a, a priest friend of mine, uh, is having her do a series of murals on the life of St. Monica, of um, St. Augustine's mom. And um, she uh, has, we see in her work, a classical handling of the human figure. And again, we see coherent storytelling. And as she um, says in her uh, thesis statement that she was inspired by Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Uh, now she's telling a personal story with her work, um, in particular her grief over the loss of her husband, who was a soldier who died in Afghanistan. Um, but it's, it's a personal story, and it's an expression of, Greece, of grief, rather, but given in the context of the universal story. So it's not... Um, told in a disconnected way from our universal story. And so it's, it's an understanding of grief tempered with hope in Christ. And I'll just leave you with a, um, one of her, um, leave you with her own words about her work. She says, my work explores an aspect of human experience that I hesitate to put into words. And so, you know, art has that wonderful ability to transcend what we can say sometimes with words, you know, to say more to us than, than, than merely words. So she says, um, in a human experience that I hesitate to put into words, by means of still life and figure paintings, I venture into themes of life, death, love in sorrow, and the nature of sacrifice. Through a subtle sense of beauty, I, I affirm the objective goodness that continues to exist in human life. We saw that right in the beginning, right in the early uh, primitive works we were looking at the goodness of human life. So she says that the goodness of life that continues to exist, even when it is difficult to perceive while in the midst of overwhelming pain. So even in the sense of sorrow, we retain our, our dignity as being children of God. By acknowledging the reality that the course of life includes traveling through various valleys of, of tears, my work offers to share in the burden of, of sorrow by providing a voice in the moments when words are not adequate. In this particular painting, which is, um, entitled Placed, we have the artist portraying herself with the crown of thorn, thorns placed on her lap, and we see clutched in her hand her husband's dog tag. So she's giving us an indication of what the nature of his sacrifice was. But also, as her other hand tentatively uh, touches the crown of thorns, that she's understanding that this crown is for her as well, that she also is experiencing sacrifice. We notice that she, um, sitting on the seat of judgment, is, is putting herself in, in uh, she's relating to Christ in, uh, in his suffering. In this uh, last work that we'll look at today, which she entitled Epilogue, we see in the upper panel, uh, we see the figure, a solitary figure in a, in a double bed. And she's looking to the empty space beside her and, and uh, very different than the screen where we saw the figure in isolation uh, sensing the meaninglessness of it all. We see her looking for the other and, and uh, lamenting in the absence of the other. 
And then in the lower panel, we see her uh, looking at us with eyes wide open. And the significance of that is that she has an understanding of life and death. The human uh, being is unique among uh, the animal world, and we have uh, uh, an understanding of death, a precognition of death. Animals don't know they're going to die until the moment of. But as human beings, we have that understanding of it. And in Christ, the, we have, we're able to, um, to, to tolerate that, I guess, by, through the belief in our, our resurrection, that, that physical death will not be the end of us. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.